Military murder is an independent project and is not endorsed by the Department of Defense or any military component. The views expressed are those of the host. The content of this podcast is not meant to be legal or medical advice. Warning, this episode contains graphic details of murder and is not suitable for young listeners. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome back, True Crime Army. I am your host, Margo, and this is Military Murder, a show where I focus on crimes committed by military members and veterans. But don't worry, you don't have to know anything about the military to listen, I promise. You just have to be a true crime enthusiast, and if that's you, welcome home. Before I begin today, a few moments of gratitude. Thank you to all my new fan club members. Thank you to everyone who's left a review for the show wherever you listen. And thank you to everyone who just listens. I am forever indebted to you. By the time I release this, it will be CrimeCon week in Vegas, so I am really looking forward to meeting all of you who intend to come. But now, I know that you are all eager to get on with the show, because things are about to get crazy in the Pat Tillman story. Last time you learned that on April 22, 2004, Pat Tillman died on a mountain in Afghanistan as a result of friendly fire. His family had not yet been notified of his death, except for his brother Kevin, who was deployed alongside his brother and was on the convoy when his brother lost his life. This is part two of the Pat Tillman story, so I highly recommend listening to part one before starting here. Join me today as I tell you the conclusion of the story behind the story of Pat Tillman's tragic death. Now, let's dig in. This story was researched and written in collaboration with Myrtle. The sources for this episode include a book by John Krakow titled Where Men Win Glory, a book by Mary Tillman titled Boots on the Ground by Dusk, my tribute to Pat Tillman, newspaper articles from the Washington Post and The Hill, and we also watched a documentary titled The Tillman Story, in which Pat's parents, his youngest brother, and his wife were interviewed. We also used the website pattillmanfoundation.org. Patrick Daniel Tillman was born on November 6, 1976, and was the oldest of three boys born to Danny, a schoolteacher, and Patrick, a lawyer. According to his mom, Pat was full of life from the minute he was born. He never crawled quite the way other babies do. He was walking by the time he was eight months old, and he was full-blown talking by the time he was only 22 months old. Pat was only 14 months old when along came his first brother, Kevin. Pat called his baby brother Nubbin, even though his real name was Kevin. And Pat's nickname for his brother stuck because the family calls Kevin Nub. The youngest Tillman, Richard, was born when Patrick was five years old and everyone called him Pooh. Pat was an adventurous kid. At age three, he got out of a second story window and jumped into a tree so that he could ride it back and forth as it swayed in the wind. The Tillmans were raised to entertain themselves. They weren't allowed to just be slugs and watch TV all day long. No, no, no. Their mom and dad expected them to be outside playing and enjoying their childhood. They only had one telephone in the house, and it was in the middle of the home with a cord. And if they wanted to talk, they had to do it in front of everyone. Pat was an athlete from a young age playing soccer, but he also played baseball. But when he was a freshman in high school, he really wanted to play on the varsity team. But when he was relegated to the JV team, he quit and decided to try his hand at football. 
and we all know how that went. Towards the end of high school, Pat got into a fight and gave the other guy a concussion. It was a pretty serious fight. Pat was charged with felony assault, but the local judge allowed Pat to complete his senior year before sentencing him. And no kidding, after high school graduation, Pat walked over to the juvenile hall where he served his 30-day punishment. While Pat had earned himself a full scholarship to play football at Arizona State, there was something else he had to do that summer before training camp. He had to complete 250 hours of community service. And his mom, Danny, well, she made sure he got that done. And off he went. After he completed his sentence, the felony was reduced to a misdemeanor. At Arizona State, Pat was All-American and earned himself a 3.8 grade point average. As we all know, Pat was drafted into the NFL and he played professional football from 1998 until 2001 for the Arizona Cardinals. But Pat Tillman never let the fame of being an NFL player get to him. He cherished the simple life that his family instilled in him. Even while his NFL colleagues drove expensive cars, Pat rode his bicycle to football practice on the daily. And if you needed to reach him, well, you'd have to call the house because he didn't own a cell phone. He was just that type of guy. Now, let me talk about Pat and his wife, Marie. Can you believe that they've known each other since four years old and they played on the same mini soccer league? How cute is that? At some point as they got older, they dated and she was his one and only girlfriend for life, even though they went to different colleges. When Pat was 25 years old in 2002, he and Marie tied the knot. But after 9-11, Pat felt that he found his true calling. He had to serve his country. He got together with his brother, Kevin, and they decided they would join the army together. Pat, Kevin, and Marie kept this all under wraps until Mother's Day 2002, when they told Danny they were joining the army. And she, like most mothers I talk about on my show, she was pissed. What? How? And why? But there was nothing she could do to stop them. At one point, she began to wonder if talking about her family members who had served in the military had given her kids the ideals that the military was a family tradition. Well, the Tillman brothers joined the army and the army kept them together. Something interesting that I learned while watching the Tillman story documentary was that after Pat returned from his first deployment to Iraq, he was approached to return to the NFL and the army was actually willing to let Pat go honorably since he had already done a combat tour. But Pat Tillman felt a duty to complete his full three-year tour. Integrity, honor, and commitment were all part of Pat Tillman's moral fiber, and he had to finish what he started. On April 22, 2004, Pat's wife was at her job in an office building in Seattle, Washington. The receptionist asked her to go to a conference room, but didn't tell Marie why. Just before 5 p.m., an Army Master Sergeant and an Army Chaplain walked into the conference room in their Class A uniforms and asked if she was Marie Tillman and if she was married to Specialist Patrick Daniel Tillman. She answered yes, and they informed her that her husband had been killed in action. Marie was close with Kevin Tillman as well, and her first question was, is Kevin okay? Then she asked how Pat was killed. The soldiers told her that he died during an ambush and that Pat had been shot in the head. 
Marie asked if Pat's parents had been informed yet, and they told her no. Immediately, she jumped into action, calling her sister and brother-in-law and asking them to get in contact with Pat's uncle so he could intercept the casualty notification at her mother-in-law's house. Marie, even in this moment of absolute grief, was considerate and she didn't want her mother-in-law to be alone when she found out. The soldiers helped Marie down to her car and while the chaplain drove her car with her in it, the other soldier followed behind in the government vehicle. Marie's brother-in-law, Alex, wasn't able to get in contact with anyone, so he drove to Pat's mom's house himself. Meanwhile, Pat's mom, Danny, had just returned home from her teaching job and she laid down to take a nap. Her phone rang, but she decided to let it go to the answering machine. It turned out it was her own mother. Danny was still awake, so she listened to the answering machine. And Danny's mother was rambling about people trying to get a hold of other people in the family. And as a mom with two deployed sons, immediately Danny's mom instinct kicked into gear. Danny called Marie's house. Marie answered, sounding calm at first. But when Danny asked her what was going on, Marie was overwhelmed with emotion and couldn't speak. Danny pressed for more information and Marie finally answered through tears, he's dead. Danny didn't understand who was dead. Marie replied, Pat's dead. In her book, Boots on the Ground by Dusk, Danny Tillman explains what happened next. She ran for the door with the phone in her hand in front of her. As she ran, she screamed for her neighbor, Peggy. She stumbled and fell to the ground. Someone reached out and grabbed her as she went down. It was her neighbor, Peggy's husband, Sid. As he held her, Peggy came up. Danny screamed, my baby, my baby, my baby's dead. Oh my God, Pat's dead. Peggy had taken the phone from her and was talking to Marie. Danny realized that she needed to be strong for Marie, then realized she didn't know if Kevin was okay or not. Peggy relayed to her that Marie didn't know anything about Kevin yet. She was waiting. Marie's brother-in-law, Alex, arrived soon after Danny got the call. And not long after that, another car arrived. A young soldier emerged from the car, looking flustered and fumbling with the buttons on her jacket. Finally, she approached Danny, who was being held by Sid and Alex. The soldier started off, Ma'am, I'm sorry to inform you. But Danny interrupted her and said, It's okay, it's okay. I already know. She turned and started walking towards the house. When they got to the house, the soldier continued, Ma'am, I'm sorry, it's my obligation to inform you officially. Both the soldier and Danny were fighting tears as she finished providing the official notification. On behalf of a grateful nation, your government regrets to inform you that your son Patrick Daniel Tillman was killed in action. She went on to tell Danny that Pat had been shot in the head, getting out of a vehicle, and died about an hour later in a field hospital. Danny asked if he suffered, and the young soldier didn't know quite what to say. Alex reassured Danny that Pat didn't suffer because he had been shot in the head. He wouldn't have been aware of anything. Danny asked a soldier if Kevin was with Pat when it happened and if he was safe, and she assured the grieving mother that Kevin was safe and that he was with his brother when it happened. Danny wanted to know if she could talk to Kevin. She needed to know where he was. The soldier didn't have the answers. Alex stepped in and told Danny, listen, this is just a casualty notification. She wouldn't have much information at all. Danny asked if Pat's father, Patrick Tillman Sr., had been notified yet. 
The Tillmans had been divorced for several years, but were steadfast in their love for their sons. Danny called Patrick and bluntly told him that Pat had been shot in the head and was dead. She thought he didn't believe her, but 20 minutes later, when he pulled in and saw the soldiers sitting on the couch with Danny, he fell to his knees crying. Eventually, the soldier was able to give him the same notification that she gave Danny. Patrick was worried about Kevin too, but understood that he was physically okay. Danny and Patrick had a third son. Their youngest son was Richard, who lived in Los Angeles. They had been unable to reach him by phone, so Patrick decided to get on a plane and try to get to Richard before he found out by hearing it on the news. Danny had the job to tell her parents, Patrick's brothers, and she still needed to reach her brother, Mike, who was at work. Eventually, everyone in the family was notified of the horrific news. Sometime around 11 p.m. that night, Danny's phone rang. It was Kevin. It was standard operating procedure to lock down outside communication at a base when a death occurred to prevent inadvertent notification of next of kin. Everyone had been notified by this point and Kevin was finally able to make the call and talk to his mom. He told her he hadn't left Pat's side since they got to the hospital. Danny asked him when he and Pat were coming home and his answers were shocking. Well, at this point, it was too dangerous for them to fly out. So hold up here. So far, we have Kevin being told by his platoon that Pat was killed, but not how. Then Marie was notified that Pat was shot in the head during an ambush. And finally, Danny was told that Pat was killed, getting out of a vehicle and died an hour later at a hospital. What is going on here? Usually the military doesn't divulge anything initially, but here it seems like they're divulging way more than usual. Clearly it's all a lie, but why? Back at Fob Salerno, Kevin arrived on the helicopter and was taken directly to the operations center. Kevin was told by Major David Hodney, the second in command at the TOC, that they would get whoever was responsible for Pat's death and that they would pay dearly for their actions. Okay, this story is getting more and more freaking confusing. What is going on here? The following morning on April 23rd, the platoon's first sergeant, Tommy Fuller, went to the canyon along with the Alpha Company commander, Captain William Saunders. So there was some other people there as well to help support the black sheep. As they walked the site on the mountain where Pat had been shot, the first sergeant made a shocking discovery. Now listen, this is extremely gruesome what I'm about to say, so if you don't want to hear it, just fast forward about 30 seconds. The first sergeant discovered Pat Tillman's brain still laying on the ground. So the first sergeant got a Ziploc bag, he placed the remains inside of it, then he put the Ziploc bag in an ammo can. He handed it over to an NCO and ordered it to be brought to Salerno so that it could be returned to the States with Pat's body. At some point, the first sergeant spoke with several soldiers that were pinned down by gunfire and concluded almost immediately that Pat must have been killed by friendly fire. He spoke to Captain Sanders, who agreed with him. Now, break, break. By this point in the story, my brain was spinning with the who's who in the chain of command. So real quick, let me explain. Lieutenant Ouellette was the leader of Serials 1 and 2. Back at Fab Salerno was Captain Saunders, who was the Alpha Company commander. Above him was Major Hodney, who was second in command at the operations center, and Lieutenant Colonel Bailey was the second Ranger Battalion commander. 
Those are really the characters that you need to know for this next part. Okay, back to the story. Later that morning, Lieutenant Colonel Jeffrey Bailey got to the scene in the canyon as well, and he surveyed the location. Bailey spoke to soldiers from both Serial 1 and Serial 2, then called back to Fop Salerno and talked to Major Hodney. Now, if you remember back to when the Humvee first broke down and couldn't be towed anymore, Major Hodney was the one playing telephone with Lieutenant Outlet through the executive officer, and he was the one saying to split the platoon into two. And just a reminder that Lieutenant Outlet was anti-splitting up the Rangers into two serials. So Lieutenant Colonel Bailey told Major Hodney that there was no doubt about it. There were six or seven Rangers who all saw the same thing. The soldiers in the lead Humvee from Serial 2 were the ones that shot at them. Major Hodney suggested that they conduct an administrative investigation into the shooting. An admin investigation is called a 15-6 investigation and is a tool the Army uses for gathering information. It is named for the Army regulation that governs it, and soldiers refer to it simply as a 15-6. At this point, Major Hodney suggested that Captain Richard Scott be appointed as the investigating officer. Now listen, nothing against Captain Scott. I am sure he was a great person, but he was definitely an odd and completely inappropriate choice in this case. For starters, he was only a captain, and he worked directly for Major Hodney. Seems like a bit of a conflict of interest, but here's the big one. 15-6 rules mandate that the investigating officer must outrank anyone named in the investigation. This meant that Captain Scott could not investigate Major Hodney or Lieutenant Colonel Bailey, who were clearly directly involved in this case. As I read into this case and then sat down to record, mind you, I just kept shouting, what? This is bullshit. This is this is bullshit. I said this over and over again, multiple times. And I'll say it here because it is just that. Bullshit. Lieutenant Colonel Bailey notified his boss, Colonel James Nixon, who was the commander of the Ranger Regiment. Colonel Nixon in turn notified his commander, Lieutenant General Philip Kensinger Jr., who commanded the Army Special Operations Command. And he also notified Major General Stanley McChrystal, who ran the Uber-Covert Joint Special Operations Command, where the Navy SEALs and Delta Force were assigned. Within a week, a notification was sent on the DL to the White House and the Pentagon with the circumstances surrounding Pat's death. Fratricide, by the way, is defined as the accidental killing of one's own forces in war. Hi, everyone. For anyone who follows me on Instagram, I recently posted a picture of me with my kiddos at Disney in front of the Disney castle. But I posted it because my shoulders were looking on fire, defined, toned, and overall just pleasant to look at. So many of you asked me in my DMs for my secret. And of course, my secret is 4 a.m. workouts. But I get the oomph to wake up at 4 a.m. and work out from my pre-workout drink called Energy Explosion. My pre-workout powder was created by world-renowned fitness guru, Natalia Melofit. I have been following Natalia for many years now. And in fact, after my second C-section, I hired her as my fitness trainer. And she also helped me postpartum with my third C-section as well. So when she came out with a pre-workout supplement that didn't cause any of the jitters and the crashing, I knew I needed to try it. Energy Explosion helps with energy. And it keeps me going all through the morning hours. Because I take it first thing in the morning, which is when I choose to work out, I no longer require that morning cup of joe. 
This pre-workout has nootropic ingredients, which significantly help me personally with mental clarity and focus, which listen, when you're juggling what feels like hundreds of tasks a day, it truly does help. And guess what? My listeners are getting 15% off your order. What? Yes, please. If you're ready to get the pump without the jitters, visit mbodysup.com and enter my code MAMAMARGO at checkout for 15% off your order. That's M as in Mike, body, sup as in Sierra, uniform, papa, papa, dot com. Add energy explosion to your car and use my code MAMAMARGO, that's M-A-M-A-M-A-R-G-O-T for 15% off. Enjoy. And when you use it, please DM me so we can talk about your workouts. Pat Tillman was known as being an intellectual, someone who read Homer and wrote his musings and deep thoughts in a journal regularly. When the black sheep departed from Salerno on their convoy, Pat grabbed a little notebook he often kept in his pocket to write down his thoughts. On the afternoon of April 23rd, Pat's coffin was on a helicopter set for Bagram. Kevin was joining his brother, but before he did, he asked everyone he could think of, Major Hodney, Lieutenant Colonel Bailey, and any ranger he came across if they had seen the little notebook that Pat had with him on the mission. He told everyone that it would be important for his family to have that notebook as a way to remember his brother. Kevin was assured by his leadership that they would do everything they could to find the notebook. And with that reassurance and a very heavy heart, Kevin boarded the helicopter. Standard operating procedure when a military member is killed in action is that they remain dressed in their uniform until they are returned to the States via Dover Air Force Base. It is there that the body undergoes an autopsy. At Dover Air Force Base, the uniform is then removed to be forensically analyzed. In Krakow's book, however, it was revealed that Pat's uniform and body armor were removed at Fob Salerno before he was flown to Bagram. What? Yes, but get this. The items were then placed in a trash bag and kept at Fob Salerno. Then, as soon as Pat's helicopter took off, or soon thereafter, a guy named Captain Wade Bovard gave the trash bag to Sergeant James Valdez and told him to burn the contents of the bag. Captain Bovard assured the sergeant that this was necessary to prevent security violations, leaks, and rumors. Valdez did what he was told and took the bag to an empty oil drum. But before he dumped the contents inside, he went through Pat's uniform pockets. Inside one of the cargo pockets, he found Pat's little notebook. Valdez then placed everything inside the drum oil, the uniform, the body armor, and the notebook. Then he lit it up. Captain Bovard came out twice to check on things, but really to make sure that Valdez had completed his task. On April 25th, the rest of the black sheep arrived back at Fob Salerno. First Sergeant Fuller had brought back Pat's vest that contained pouches for ammo that was worn over his body armor. The vest was clearly riddled with bullet holes, soaked with blood, and a fragment of a green-tipped saw round was stuck in one of the pouches. That night, the first sergeant burned Pat's vest in the same barrel that Valdez had used to destroy Pat's uniform and body armor. Oh my gosh, all of this right now gives me a pit in the bottom of my stomach. All of the soldiers in Black Sheep knew that Pat had been killed by another ranger, but were sworn to silence by Lieutenant Colonel Bailey. 
Kevin pleaded with the platoon leadership to be able to talk to Private O'Neill since he knew that O'Neill had been with Pat in his last moments. After eight calls, Lieutenant Colonel Bailey allowed Private O'Neill to talk to Kevin, but O'Neill was given strict orders to keep it watered down, and O'Neill told Kevin basic information. O'Neill told Kevin that it was all a blur, but he remembered that he had ran up the hill. Then the AMF guy got shot. Then Pat got shot and they were shooting. Then Pat was down and everything after that was just a fuzzy mess. During that call, O'Neill followed orders. He didn't tell Kevin the truth, but this ate him alive because he felt that Pat's family deserved the truth of what happened. Kevin, along with Pat's friend, Specialist Russell Bear, flew with Pat's remains to Dover Air Force Base. But before boarding that plane, Bear was under the same orders as O'Neill to keep quiet about what he knew about Pat's death. Marie, Pat's widow, was to be flown by the Army to Dover. But according to Danny Tillman's book, Boots on the Ground by Dusk, the Army never followed through with the flight and Marie Tillman was able to arrive at Dover at the generous hands of an anonymous stranger who allowed the family to use their plane. Dr. Craig Malik, chief of the Armed Forces Medical Examiners, and Dr. James Carusco, his deputy, performed Pat Tillman's autopsy at Dover. They were both stunned, though, when they opened the coffin and inside was Pat's naked body. As I stated earlier, it was protocol for the body to be clothed in what they were wearing when they were killed. Uniform, helmet, body armor, boots, all of it. Dr. Malik was furious when he found out that the things Pat was wearing when he was killed were missing. What the what? Okay, why would someone do that? Not that the missing clothing wasn't enough, but the army also failed to notify Dr. Malik that Pat was a victim of fratricide. Because remember, by the time that Pat's body got to Dover, everyone in Afghanistan knew that this was friendly fire. In John Krakow's book, he reveals, that the army did talk to Dr. Malik. In fact, they went as far as to brief him, the man performing the autopsy, that Pat was shot by insurgents, which is a clear lie. The coroners, however, they were concerned because Pat's gunshot wounds didn't match the story they were given. The men asked for more information, but the army was elusive with their responses. It was so bad that the two doctors refused to sign the autopsy report, and rightfully so. On April 28th, Marie, Kevin, and Russell Bear headed for California with Pat's remains. Back at Danny's house, Pat's friends talked to Richard, Pat's younger brother, about doing something special for Kevin. They were devastated at the loss of Pat, but relieved and grateful that Kevin was still alive. They settled on making two banners to hang on the road to Danny's house. The fire department was enlisted to help hang it, and they even set up floodlights so that Kevin could see them at night. One banner read, quote, every day's Sunday, baby, end quote. And that was one of Pat's favorite sayings. The other would have just three letters on it. N-U-B, Nub. Because remember, Nub was Pat's nickname for Kevin when they were little. The community had come together and hung American flags along both sides of the road going on for more than a mile. Kevin, Marie, and Russell Bear arrived in San Francisco with Pat's body late on the 28th. A hearse transported them to the mortuary. Danny described her reunion with Kevin and Marie in her book. When she met them at the funeral home, Kevin met her and wrapped her in a big bear hug, 
as they cried together for just a few moments. He whispered to his mom that Pat was inside. Danny had decided that she wanted to see her son one last time. They asked the funeral director to open the casket for them, and the director was uncertain because he hadn't even seen Pat's body yet and didn't have any idea how it looked. But he followed orders and opened it at Patrick Sr.'s insistence. Marie and Kevin had decided they did not want to see Pat's body. Kevin gently reminded his mom that it wasn't Pat, that Pat was already gone. As they entered the room, the top half of the casket was open. Patrick Sr. picked up Pat's torso and held him in an embrace for a moment. Richard approached and leaned over to say something to his brother, then kissed him on the nose. Danny was the last one to see him. He was only visible from the waist up since the coffin was only halfway open. They had dressed him in a white t-shirt. Danny describes what she saw, quote, The back of his head was wrapped in gauze and plastic and his face was distorted and bloated. Yet there was something familiar about the mouth and eyebrows. His skin looked as though it had been covered with a layer of wax. And I noticed a small concave spot on his head that looked as though it had been patched. I saw that his hands were wrapped in white towels and the only thing I really recognized was his left forearm. Danny laid her hand on Pat's chest, smiling at her son and said, Hi, Pat. She was struck by how cold and hollow he felt. It was hard for her to see her once larger-than-life son laying there, but realized that Kevin was right. This wasn't Pat. Pat was gone. That night on the CBS News program 60 Minutes, a story broke about the abuse and torture of Iraqi prisoners at the hands of the American soldiers who were guarding them. In John Krakow's book, he describes how White House counsel reacted to the story. Basically, they knew that they were in a PR nightmare that wasn't going to end easily, but they had a plan. The White House, quote, perception manager, end quote, Jim Wilkerson was the mastermind behind the way that Private Jessica Lynch's capture and rescue was pitched to the American public. Private Lynch was the young soldier who had been captured by Iraqi forces when Pat and Kevin Tillman had been deployed to Iraq the year before Pat's death. The story Wilkerson spun about Jessica Lynch was a huge misrepresentation as to what actually happened. His version was full of exaggeration and flat-out lies. You see, Jessica Lynch's convoy had been attacked, but it happened after the convoy commander made a wrong decision and the entire convoy took a wrong turn twice and ended up in the middle of an Al-Qaeda stronghold. Lynch's convoy wasn't manned by soldiers who were experienced in battle or even well-trained for it. They were mostly cooks, supply clerks, and mechanics. Through a series of events, Lynch's convoy was turned around to try to get out of the city but came under heavy attack on their way out. The convoy was split up and in the confusion, soldiers were captured and subsequently killed. Lynch's Humvee was in the rear of the convoy when the vehicle in front of hers jackknifed their Humvee and slammed into the back of it, causing severe injuries to the driver and Lynch. Three other soldiers in her vehicle died either on impact or not long after. Lynch and the driver, another private who was her best friend named Lori Paistua, were seriously injured and knocked unconscious. They were taken to an Iraqi hospital, but then transported by ambulance to an Iraqi civilian hospital, where sadly, Private Paistua died as a result of her injuries. Private Lynch was treated for her injuries and by her own account was treated kindly. Meanwhile, Jim Wilkerson was spinning a tale for the media, 
about Lynch's ordeal that was far from the truth, including statements that she fought until she ran out of ammunition, when in reality, she didn't fire a single shot because her rifle jammed. He said she had been stabbed multiple times, but she had never been stabbed. There were tales of her being raped and tortured, but thankfully, neither of which ever happened. She was treated by doctors in a modern hospital and received compassionate care. But Wilkerson made sure the American public thought that Jessica Lynch's story as an American hero was full of as much drama as he could muster. What happened to Private Lynch's convoy was a tragedy. Six soldiers were taken captive and 11 were actually killed. And here, I would like to remember some of those soldiers, our brothers and sisters who we lost. They are Sergeant George Bugs, Master Sergeant Robert Dowdy, Private Ruben Estrella Soto, Specialist James Keel, Chief Warrant Officer Johnny Villavreal Mata, Lori Paestua, Private Brandon Sloan, Sergeant Daniel Walters. Those are only eight people that I've named. Honestly, I tried to search out the names of the remaining three, but couldn't find them, as all the articles were just about Jessica and they failed to name those lost, which is really a tragedy in and of itself. Lynch's rescue was a massive PR event. Combat cameramen were deployed on the mission with the rescue team to fully capture all of the events for the American public. In the days surrounding the convoy's ill-fated wrong turns, several other tragic events occurred. On March 24th, a tank drove off a bridge in the Euphrates River, killing three soldiers on board. The day before that, an American Patriot missile was mistakenly fired at a British aircraft, killing the pilot and navigator. On March 23rd, about a month before Pat was killed, 18 U.S. Marines died as a result of mistaken identity made by two Air Force A-10 Warthogs flown by pilots from the Pennsylvania Air National Guard. The A-10 pilots thought they were firing missiles and bullets at Iraqi forces, so they made five passes each over the target hitting American Marines with eight 500-pound bombs, three Maverick missiles, and bullets from the massive Gatling gun that is mounted on the nose of the Warthogs. 17 more Marines were wounded. This occurred during the Battle of Nazaria in Iraq. White House spokesperson Wilkerson needed to get the attention off of the accidental killings of American service members by other Americans. Private Jessica Lynch's predicament was just what he needed to change the focus. A year later, the White House needed a new hero to take the negative attention away from what was happening at the Abu Ghraib prison. And Pat Tillman was the reluctant poster child for Army recruitment when he turned down a lucrative NFL contract to enlist with the Rangers. Now, Pat Tillman's face could be used to turn the public's attention away from the horrors that were occurring in Abu Ghraib. A decision was made to posthumously award Pat Tillman with the Silver Star. Interestingly, Specialist Brian O'Neill was ordered to write a statement about what happened to him and Pat on the side of the mountain. A Silver Star is the third highest military combat decoration, and it is awarded for gallantry, a.k.a. courage in battle. In the book Where Men Win Glory, O'Neill said that the powers that be in the army made him sit in front of a computer and type out a statement. And he did. But after several edits by others, it was embellished to the point that O'Neill refused to sign it. Supposedly, Sergeant Ward also wrote a statement, but he doesn't recall writing this statement at all nor was it written in a way that he would write, and the statement was never signed. 
Pat's Silver Star package was fast-tracked and signed by the acting Secretary of the Army on April 29th, just one week after Pat's death. The next day, a press release was given stating that Pat would be honored with the Silver Star. Nothing was mentioned about fratricide, and more than that, the citation contained language that sounded like he had been killed in a firefight with insurgents. While all of this was going on in the background, everyone in Pat's life was still in the dark about what truly happened that evening on the mountain in Afghanistan. As far as his family knew, Pat died a hero's death, fighting for his country, being shot in the head by insurgents while exiting a vehicle. Marie talked with Danny and they decided to schedule Pat's memorial for May 3rd. That's heartbreaking when you realize that that was the day before Pat and Marie's second wedding anniversary. Several VIPs attended Pat's memorial service, including Lieutenant General Philip Kensinger, the commander of the U.S. Special Operations Command, Senator John McCain, and even Maria Shriver. ESPN even broadcast Pat's memorial live, and it was the perfect platform for the Silver Star to be released to the nation. Pat and Kevin had befriended a Navy SEAL during their time in Iraq, and this guy's name was Steve White it was decided that Steve would give Pat's eulogy. It was then that the Army approached Steve and asked him if he would be willing to announce the Silver Star as part of the eulogy. Steve, of course, said it would be an honor, but he wanted to talk to some of the guys that were with Pat to, in not so many words, fact check. The Army was like, yeah, yeah, of course, oh my goodness, we would never want you to compromise your integrity. And the Army put Steve in contact with someone from the 2nd Ranger Battalion, who read the Silver Star citation over the phone to him and assured Steve that the information was accurate. Steve worked his speech around that information, never once assuming that he was being lied to. It was now May 3rd, and Danny Tillman had decided that black was just the wrong color to wear to Pat's memorial, and instead she chose a pink dress. Richard, Pat's youngest brother, wore a white t-shirt and jeans, And of course, the Army generals and enlisted members from Pat and Kevin's platoon, well, they were all decked out in their dress uniforms. Coaches, teammates, family and friends surrounded the Tillmans on this day. Maria Shriver read a letter. Senator McCain spoke about Pat's character. Country music star Darius Rucker sang Desperado, which was Pat's favorite song. And later he sang America the Beautiful. Danny noted in her book that three of the speakers referenced God in their speeches, but Pat was an atheist. So, I don't know, that was kind of like a forehead slap. During the eulogy, Steve White spoke about Pat as a friend and as a hero based off of the Silver Star citation. And it was during Steve White's summary of the Silver Star narrative that the Tillman family received the first bit of information concerning the details of how Pat was killed. At some point during the eulogy, Richard Tillman jumped on stage with a glass of Guinness and made a toast to his brother, saying in part, quote, Pat's a fucking champion and always will be, end quote. The grieving young brother ended his short eulogy, curtly reiterating that Pat wasn't religious. Quote, he's not religious, so thanks for your thoughts, but he's fucking dead, end quote. I am sure people in the audience gasped at this language, but to that, I think, Well said, Richard. Death hurts. People grieve. Say what you want in public. Some people were taken aback by Richard's bluntness, but his family and friends knew that he was speaking on behalf of Pat. 
he looked and sounded a lot like his older brother. At the end of the ceremony, specialist Russell Bear was charged with providing the family with their folded flags. He provided one to Mary, Danny, and Patrick Sr. Russell Bear had been on the ridge above Pat when he was killed, and he knew fully that the information that Steve White read in the Silver Star narrative was not anywhere near the truth, but he remained silent. After the memorial, the Tillmans invited Bear and the others back to Danny's house for a gathering. Pat's dad, knowing that Bear was present when Pat was killed, asked him to tell him what happened. And I just want to interject here, if I may. Since starting this show, I have been in contact with many grieving family members, and they have described to me that not knowing is the most painful. While many people shy away from the gruesome, painful facts of death, the deceased family members, sometimes not always, they want to know it all, down to the tiniest, most seemingly insignificant detail, because that's all they have left of that person. And I imagine in this moment in this story, when Patrick Sr. is asking Bear to tell him what happened, he just wants to know the details. Explain the lighting, the temperature, the sounds, the shadows. Did he scream? Did you hear him? Tell me everything. Right then and there, Specialist Bear struggled morally. He desperately wanted to tell the family the truth. but He also wanted to follow Army orders. On this day, though, Bear decided to stick with the story the Army had conjured up. But his lies would cost him. After sitting with Pat's family, Bear felt so horrible that he decided that he couldn't go back to Fort Lewis. And he went AWOL, which is absent without leave. And he went to his grandparents' house. When he didn't show up for work, his sergeant major, the ranking enlisted member in his unit, began calling him over and over again and leaving messages, calling him a deserter and said he was the worst ranger ever. Meanwhile, Captain Scott, the one who had been assigned to complete the 15-6 report, finished his investigation and turned in his report. And just a reminder that the captain wasn't allowed by regulation to look into anyone who outranked him, which was Major Hodney and Lieutenant Colonel Bailey. But Captain Scott was no punk ass. He called it how he saw it, and for that, I tip my hat to him. So listen, in his report, Captain Scott cited gross negligence in Specialist Pat Tillman's death and indicated that further investigation should be completed to determine if there was any criminal intent. The report went on to state that leadership played a critical role in the fratricide of Specialist Pat Tillman. Captain Scott concluded in his report that Pat Tillman died as a result of fratricide. But then something mysteriously happened. The 75th Ranger Regiment Commander, Colonel Nixon, refused to sign the report, citing that not only was it incomplete, but Captain Scott was not senior enough to investigate the matter. So a new 15-6 investigator was assigned. This time, it was Lieutenant Colonel Ralph Kozlarik, And of course, it was Nixon's second in command, you know, because you have to keep the watcher's watcher close by. The new 15-6 was finalized on May 16th, but they treated this report like a top secret document. The determination of the cause of Pat's death was the same as Captain Scott's. Pat Tillman died as a result of fratricide. Recently, I covered two unsolved cases, which I am sure caused you to pause and analyze your inner detective. Well, if you want to hone in on that inner detective, then you need to check out June's journey. 
June's Journey is a mobile game that you can play anywhere while connected to Wi-Fi. June's Journey takes you through the main character, June's, adventure to uncover family secrets. Her first task is to uncover the mystery of her sister's death. You will be using your keen eye to spot hidden clues in the immersive scenes that take you across the globe. The scene is set in the 1920s, so it's like going back in time. June's Journey is a hidden object mystery game, and I love playing while waiting for my kids at the bus stop. It allows me to clear my mind from the tasks of the day and to refocus on my mommy duties. What I love about June's Journey is that not only are you searching for objects, but you can join other players online in a detective club. And then you also get to design this luxurious island estate that is all yours. And if you have friends who play, you can gift each other trees, flowers, and other amazing decorative items. Today, I invite you to escape reality and immerse yourself in the world of June Parker. Discover your inner detective when you download June's Journey for free today on iOS and Android. Go ahead, download June's Journey today. On May 22nd, a month after Pat had been killed, the black sheep returned home to Fort Lewis, Washington. Kevin had returned to Tacoma with Mary by then and went to Fort Lewis to welcome his black sheep brothers home. The men who had just returned home were ready to cut loose and were all laughing and joking. And this really affected Kevin. He expected everyone to be somber and sad about his brother's death, but it was business as usual back at the unit. In the days that followed, no one in the unit said a word to Kevin about the circumstances of Pat's death. By now, Lieutenant Colonel Bailey realized that there was no way he could keep the soldiers quiet forever, and Bailey ordered the first sergeant to tell Kevin what actually happened. Meanwhile, Kevin was working with the very soldiers who had shot his brother. He helped them unpack their gear and even helped clean their weapons. Around lunchtime on May 24th, Kevin was called to the first sergeant's office. When he sat down, First Sergeant Fuller didn't waste any time. He told Kevin that Pat may have been killed by rangers, and Kevin was rightfully shocked. Kevin went home and told Marie. Lieutenant Colonel Bailey came over to their house later that evening and officially notified them that Pat had been killed by fratricide. Four days later, Lieutenant Colonel Bailey, together with Kevin and Marie, flew from Washington to California to tell Danny and Patrick Sr. what really happened to Pat. The White House would also be releasing this information to the public, and they chose May 29th, the beginning of the long Memorial Day weekend. Maybe they chose this date strategically so the American people wouldn't be caught up in headlines. They'd be more worried about picnics and beach vacations. Sadly, a reporter from the Arizona Republic called Danny Tillman, Pat's mom, the afternoon of the 28th before Kevin had a chance to get there. And the reporter asked her what she thought about Pat's death being a result of friendly fire. Oh, shoot. The story had been leaked. Another person who hadn't known about the fratricide was Steve White. So Kevin called Steve White and told him about the fratricide. And Steve wasn't very happy hearing about it. He had stood on a national stage and told the fabricated story about Pat's heroism from the Silver Star write-up. He was pretty pissed that the army would put him in that position. Lieutenant General Philip Kensinger, who was the commander of the USS Special Operations Command, he was chosen to be the one to brief the American people in the press brief. He read a scripted statement and was forbidden from taking any questions from reporters. The statement read in part, quote, While there was no one specific finding of fault, the investigation results indicate that Corporal Tillman 
probably died as a result of friendly fire while his unit was engaged in combat with enemy forces, end quote. Probably? What? No, this isn't probably. Everyone said it happened and that's how it happened. The Tillman, specifically Danny, were determined to find out what actually happened to Pat that day in April. They learned about the 15-6 and were invited to Fort Lewis in July to be briefed on the outcome. They asked for copies of the investigation to read before they arrived, but the Army denied their request. Over the course of three hours, Lieutenant Colonel Bailey went through a PowerPoint presentation outlining what happened the day Pat died. The Tillmans asked if the people who had shot Pat would be court-martialed, but Bailey told them he didn't know if they would be. The family pressed for more information, but he couldn't provide any answers for them. The Tillmans were finally given copies of the 15-6, but it only brought up more questions. Remember back to the day when Pat was killed? There had been an Air Force Predator drone flying in the area. Some of the Rangers could hear it. Now, a civilian contractor actually said he remembered seeing the video feed, but the Army denied its existence during the investigation. And later, when the Army finally revealed disciplinary actions taken for the leadership failures that led to their son's death, the Tillmans were floored. Those disciplinary actions were described in John Krakow's book. Lieutenant David Outlet was, quote, released for standards, end quote, or RFS. So what does that mean? Basically, it means he was removed from the Special Rangers program and sent to the regular army. So wait a minute, army. You mean to tell me that the only person with a brain in Pat Tillman's chain of command was released, but all the other turd buckets got to stick around with their thumbs up their you-know-whats? Honestly, how? How are people not pissed about this? But wait, there's more. Staff Sergeant Greg Baker, he was in charge of the Humvee in Serial 2 that was shooting at Serial 1. Well, he was reduced in rank and also RFS'd from the Rangers as well. Three machine gunners that were in Baker's Humvee, Trevor Alders, Steve Elliott, and Stephen Ashpole were also RFS'd. These were the men who were shooting at their own comrades and they got a very lenient punishment. They all objected to their punishments, especially Alders. He wrote a five and a half page single space letter that basically cried about how he was the victim in this case. <laughs> okay, let's talk about victims, okay? Alders was a saw gunner, and the shots that killed Pat Tillman were determined to have come from his weapon. So please, spare us all the tears. Now listen, this is all according to John Krakow's book, okay? The two officers who ultimately made the decision to split the platoon, Major David Hodney and Captain William Saunders, they both received, are you ready for this? Written reprimands. What the what? So to finalize this portion of shock and awe, everyone basically got a slap on the wrist. Oh, but wait, any guess what happened to Lieutenant Colonel Bailey, the commander of the 2nd Battalion? Promotion to Colonel. And Colonel Nixon? <laughs> Promotion to General. Well, you can rest assured that the Tillmans were outraged and wanted to know more. The soldiers had clearly gone against their training, shooting wildly the way they did. When you think about this case, it's easy to believe that this was the fog of war. Adrenaline is rushing high. You've just been shot at by actual enemies. And I know that my listeners will differ in their opinions as to what this feeling is. But Danny, Pat's mom, did not believe 
for one second that the men who were frantically shooting like a bunch of Rambo wannabes were in the fog of war. Danny believed they were in a lust of war that caused the men to fire on Pat's position. Because if you remember, after the smoke grenade was thrown, the shooting stopped. It is believed that the soldiers were so wrapped up in earning their combat infantry badge that they were going to shoot at anything. After learning of everything that went down and the punishment or lack of punishment, Danny wrote to Senator John McCain, who had spoken at Pat's memorial. She had a long list of questions and she wanted his help getting the answers. Senator McCain sent her questions to the Army. And finally, in November of 2004, Lieutenant General Kensinger opened another 15-6 investigation. This time, it was assigned to Brigadier General Gary Jones, who was the commander of the Army Special Forces. The following March of 2005, General Jones 15-6 concluded, and Danny received a heavily redacted copy of the nearly 3,000-page report. While the report did ultimately say that the Army screwed up the response to Pat Tillman's killing by not reporting the fratricide right away, that conclusion was buried in the report and not clearly stated. But if the Army thought they were going to drown out the Tillman family with 3,000 pages, they messed with the wrong freaking family because Danny was a schoolteacher and Patrick was a lawyer. Shoot. I read at least 500 pages a week for this podcast if necessary. If someone messed with my loved ones, you bet your ass I could read through 3,000 pages in no time. Mind you, the case file that Tillman received was heavily redacted, so it did take time to fill in the blanks. After Danny tried as hard as she could for over a year to get answers, Patrick Tillman Sr. had had enough. So. Not only was he a pissed off father, he was a pissed off lawyer. He sat down in April of 2005 and wrote a scathing letter to the army. Now, I'm going to call it a scathing legal review because that's exactly what it appeared to be. Patrick wrote that he had been seeking to resolve two questions. One, how was his son killed? And two, was there a cover up? He went line by line and put the facts on paper. Boom, this person lied. Boom, this person lied. Boom, you said this. He concluded the letter in the most unique way ever. Honestly, I had a good little chuckle when I saw this on the documentary. Patrick Sr. concluded, quote, in some, fuck you and yours, end quote. According to the Tillman Story documentary, The Army received the letter and its strong wording and considered it a formal accusation of criminal misconduct. And in August of 2005, the Department of Defense's Inspector General's office announced that they were going to be reviewing the way the Army handled Pat's death. It took close to 18 long months to complete and revealed many inaccuracies in the previous 15-6 reports, and it called the Army out for the errors in reporting fratricide. In April of 2007, the Inspector General Thomas Gimbel was called to testify on the results to the House of Representatives Committee on Oversight and Government Reform. Also invited to testify were Danny and Kevin Tillman, Brian O'Neill, who was with Pat when he was killed, Jessica Lynch, and Pat's friend Steve White. Jessica Lynch testified about how misinformation placed her family's home under siege by the media. 
In Quackow's book, Lynch was quoted as saying, quote, The bottom line is, the American people are capable of determining their own ideals for heroes. They don't need to be told elaborate lies. The truth of war is not always easy. The truth is always more heroic than the hype, end quote. Brian O'Neill testified that he was certain that Pat was killed by fratricide, but was told to not tell Kevin Tillman that his brother was killed by friendly fire. He also testified that he was ordered to write a statement for the Silver Star narrative, but that it was changed without his consent and that he never signed it. Steve White testified about feeling horrified after learning he told the American public the Army's lies and how deceitful it was that they used a decorated Navy SEAL to promote their misinformation. Kevin Tillman spoke as well and gave a scathing testimony regarding the inaccurate information and blatant lies regarding the investigations into Pat's death, including discarding Captain Scott's initial 15-6 report. Kevin Tillman ended his testimony by honoring his brother, saying, quote, Pat and these other soldiers volunteered to put their lives on the line for this country. Anything less than the truth is a betrayal of those values that all soldiers who have fought for this nation have sought to uphold, end quote. He continued in part, quote, the one bit of truth that did survive these manipulations is that Pat was and still is a great man, end quote. On July 31st, 2007, a press conference was held at the Pentagon where the Secretary of the Army, Pete Guerin, had an important announcement to make about Pat Tillman. He stated, there was never a cover-up in Pat Tillman's case. <laughs> Outrageously, he went on to say that it was a coincidence that documents were falsified and information was withheld. But again, he circled back, there was no cover-up. Oh my gosh, this case makes my head hurt. Secretary Guerin also announced the censure of now-retired Lieutenant General Kensinger, essentially publicly reprimanding him and indicating that he was being considered for demotion to major general. By the way, you cannot reduce officers in rank while they're on active duty, but once an officer is retired, they can in fact be reduced in rank by a process called an officer grade determination. Anyway, Kensinger was already retired at that point, and ultimately he did retain his rank of lieutenant general. So the censure was the hardest punishment given to anyone as a result of the investigation. Secretary Guerin was quoted as saying, quote, I believe the buck stops with General Kensinger, end quote. By the way, if you'd like to see General retired Kensinger's response, make sure that you watch the Tillman story documentary. He makes an appearance on it. Pat's legacy lives on in so many ways. A small outpost in Paktika province in Afghanistan was named Fab Tillman, and it remained operational until 2012. But the biggest presence is the Pat Tillman Foundation, established by Pat's widow, Marie Tillman. Through the foundation, they support Tillman scholars and provide scholarships to military members and spouses. 60 scholars are selected annually based on merit and their potential for impact. As of 2020, over $20 million has been given to scholars through the foundation. There is an annual 4.2 mile race. And remember, 4.2 is a nod to his jersey number, which was 42 from college. 
And this annual 4.2 mile race is held in Tempe, Arizona. And this race raises over $1 million a year for the scholarship program. In 2005, when the first race was held, they had 5,000 registered runners. It has now grown substantially to 28,000 runners in Tempe and 20,000 virtual runners and is the second largest military race and 15th largest race in the country. Marie acts as the chair on the board of directors and is very active in the foundation. On March 17, 2007, an Army Senior Decorations Board reviewed the posthumous award of the Silver Star to Corporal Tillman. And on March 26, 2007, the Army announced that they were affirming the Silver Star but modifying the citation to more accurately reflect the circumstances of Corporal Tillman's actions. Richard Tillman, the youngest Tillman brother, thinks that his brother didn't live to be a legend. He was a legend because he lived life to the fullest and he wants people to remember the real Pat. He said, quote, you want to make him a myth? Go ahead and make him a myth. Just be accurate with it. If he can walk on water in these myths, then let him have a beer every once in a while. Let him hang out with his friends. Let him be gracious and let him be sensitive and let him be funny and let him be all the things that he was, end quote. While Patrick never went on the record to tell anyone publicly why he left a career in the NFL to join the army, Immediately after 9-11, Pat was interviewed by a reporter, and this is what he had to say. My great-grandfather was at Pearl Harbor, and a lot of my family has given up, you know, has gone and fought in wars, and, and I really haven't done a damn thing um, as far as laying myself on the line like that, and so I have a great deal of respect for those that have and what the flag stands for. Thank you all for joining me again for this show. I can't believe it's been 18 years since Pat Tillman died. I know this two-part episode on Pat Tillman was very different from my usual, but I wanted to cover it because it kind of goes to show how lies in the military can be perpetuated by leadership. This was a friendly fire incident. Now let's think back to the stories like Lavina Johnson from episode 40 and Kamisha Block from episode 38. Both died while deployed and the Army's version of events just didn't add up. All right, well, that's all you have for me this week. Make sure that you follow me on TikTok where I release at least two or three stories a week on cases that you've never heard before on the podcast. My backup social media account is on Instagram and you can follow me there at Military Murder Podcast. This show was created by Mama Margot Productions and is produced in collaboration with my bootcamp and higher fan club members. The music was created by TyOps. Until next time, remember, you never really know what someone is capable of. So remain vigilant always. You have a fabulous week and I'll keep digging to bring you more military murder stories next time.